0: And we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, I'm going to remind you that yet again, I'm, I'm running solo. Doc has lost her voice at the Mighty Dragon Con this year. And uh, Garber is still trying to dry out Apparently he fell off his boat, I don't know We won't ask too many questions, I'm sure the answers would be embarrassing anyway But uh, instead, I'm just going to introduce you to my guest, Mr. D.G.D. Davidson We call him Deej for short But uh, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers?
1: Well, hello, I am an archaeologist, librarian, science fiction geek, uh, magical girl, anime fan, and also an author. I have three novels out so far and am working furiously on others. And I'm uh, excited to be able to talk about it with you here today.
0: All right. And the next part of that introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So you're going to get sick of hearing this, but he's one of the last ones that uh, came to us via Declan Finn over on the uh, the Twitter's. So a friend of the show, Declan, hooked us up, and uh, we're going to have to start doing people that don't know Declan just for a change of pace next month. But, uh, you know, we we don't look at gift horse in the mouth. Speaking of looking at gift horse in the mouth, we can't let you stay, sir, until you answer the religion question. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly?
1: You know, I may not answer that exactly the way that you want. My my own opinion. I know this. This may be contrary to uh, this. This may be. You asked. You called a religion question, so this may be uh, unorthodox or heretical. My view of stories is: I really like them contained. I like I like self-contained narratives. I like complete narratives. I like contained universes. Um, I really like the original Star Wars trilogy, and I have frankly, never really been interested in, in looking very much at all into the expanded universe or prequels and sequels and so forth. And something I would say similar about Star Trek, I love the original series. I kind of feel that it went off the rails after that part, uh, starting already with the movies. Um l- let's see, what was the next one? Firefly. I did, I did very much enjoy Firefly and I guess that is, in a way more self contained. Uh, if it has any expanded universe or, or so forth, I haven't, I'll follow up on it though. Also, I guess I admit, I thought that one went off the rails with the movie that, that finished it off though. And perhaps in a sense it had to, since it got canceled and they had to wrap it up um, pretty quickly, if at all, if you're asking me which one of those I think is superior to the others. Um, I might I might have to pass. I'm not sure I I have a, a thought on that because I appreciate all three of them uh for what they are in different ways. They're uh they're different approaches to the space opera and and I respect all three of them.
0: So so you're going to be a trinitarian. You like all three okay, for different Yeah, Let's say
1: that. Trinitarian if that's it.
0: <laughs> I don't know if it's a word, but if it isn't, we just made it up and we're going to It rock is it, out.
1: it is a word. It usually refers to something else, but uh
0: okay and because we're polytheistic here at the sci-fi nope i got the name wrong again i'm gonna start having to owe people money when i do that but we here at the blasters and blades it's only been two years since we rebranded you'd think i'd get it right uh but because we're polytheistic game of thrones lord of the rings or wheel of time
1: we're definitely going to have to go with Lord of the Rings on that one, and um, and probably for for a similar reason. <laughs> Um, You know, of course, Game of Thrones is incomplete and may uh, may forever be incomplete for all we know. Um, Wheel of Time, I will admit, I've looked at it on the shelf, looked at it good and hard, and just saw how many volumes there were, and kind of said to myself, "Nah, <laughs> I won't. I won't deny that. I know. Again, that might that might make me a." Uh, a heretic here but um i i really appreciate a lord of the rings although again my uh my belief in contained narratives um i've i've never been able to get excited about the rest of the legendarium um whether it be uh, the silmarillion or um any of the various did i just use the wrong no i didn't or or any of the uh the various books that were that were published more recently um i do think both the Hobbit has uh, as an excellent children's novel and then as the lord of the rings is a more adult uh, expansion on that same world are excellent but uh a, a lot of the rest of that i admit never never really was able to get me excited even though i can certainly in a intellectual or academic uh standpoint can can appreciate the work and the the genius that went into creating all of it but uh, my my love of the complete and contained story has, has perhaps somewhat uh somewhat limited my appreciation of those really sprawling uh fantasy worlds so
0: so would you say you prefer standalones or just smaller contained series so like a trilogy would you read that or is that too
1: oh i would absolutely expansive? read a trilogy and so and you know it, it's not as if i'm unable to appreciate a story that that keeps going and going it's it's more that um I think, I think by the time I noticed Wheel of Time, it was already so large that um, I, I never began it simply because there, were, there have always been other things higher on my, my list of desired reads. And I, I know, of course, it is now finally complete. Um, I'll also admit when it comes to, say, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, um, a, a lot of the things I've heard about it from people who I respect make it sound really nihilistic and like something i might not enjoy maybe i would actually if i attempted it but but i never have to be honest so
0: okay so we here at the blasters and blades podcast see i got it right this time people like both the fantastical and the scientific so what was your first love sci-fi or fantasy
1: that is a good question and i think um, my first love would probably have been uh, something of a blend of both, because uh, when I was a kid, when I first really discovered that I was a sci-fi or fantasy geek, um, the author who who really interested me, and also who I was trying to imitate, like say back in middle school when I was first uh, first began writing, first began attempting my own stories and my own my own novels, uh, most of which, of course, were very bad at that age, naturally enough. But uh the, the man who really interested me was Ray Bradbury. And of course, Ray Bradbury was never uh hard when it came to his science fiction. He was always more of a kind of um almost a, a lyrical storyteller who's more like evoking moods and and painting word paintings than he was attempting to give any kind of you know realistic portrayal of of space travel or anything like that. So he's usually named as a science fiction author, but you could as easily call his work fantasy since uh, actual science, real science was, was never exactly his interest. And I, I think I would say something that similar about my own work, that's probably at least something that I have taken away from him is kind of uh, maybe a blending of, of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, with less of a concern with scientific accuracy and more of a concern with um, bigger ideas of, of a more uh, philosophical sense. I'm more of a humanities guy than a science guy myself. So,
0: Okay, that's a well-thought-out answer. So what is your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction as a genre? Was it watching something on the television, reading a book, comic, playing a video game? Like, How did you discover spec
1: it, it seems like I have been interested in these genres for so long, it's actually kind of hard to pick out a first memory. But I do I do have a vague memory, although I couldn't tell you exactly what age I would have been. It would have been somewhere back in elementary school. I remember when I was a kid, um, a lot of the books that were being pushed at me tended to be more realistic fiction. I think, I think Beverly Cleary was a pretty popular author when I was a kid. I mean i i uh i I mean no insults toward beverly cleary but i really did not like her work when i was a kid it just didn't interest me she wrote she wrote stories about ordinary kids doing ordinary things that was her genre and i know there was an audience for that but i didn't like it at all i wanted something more exciting more fantastic that i couldn't really define uh, something similar uh, happened when I read, say, the Hardy Boys. I was always disappointed when their mysteries got solved, and it turned—they'd start out with something that looked supernatural, and then it would turn out actually to be something very ordinary. And to me, that was a big letdown. It wasn't aha, the mystery is solved, everything made sense. It was just more like, oh, really? Is that all there is? I'm I'm disappointed by that. And there was a book called City Beyond the Clouds, which I believe is volume seven of the great marvel series Um, i don't think i'm even the one who found it it was probably my brother who checked it out at random from the public library it's it was a boys adventure series in terms of its rather poor writing styles very similar to like a hardy boys novel but you know it starts out with you know this fantastic airship crashes into a lake and the, the the two boys were just like the Hardy Boys, except different types of adventures, rescue this man from the this downed craft. And he reveals that he came from this planetoid that's hidden in Earth's shadow. And his daughter has been kidnapped by an evil race of red dwarves. So they build a new aircraft to fly up to this planetoid. And they load up on guns and they're fighting monsters and giant grasshoppers and evil dwarves and all this stuff. And, you know, to me as a kid looking for fantastic things that I didn't really know how to describe or define, this was absolutely mind blowing. This was like a life changing book to me uh, at that age. And it was from that point forward, I learned both that there are, there do in fact exist the kind of books that I wanted to read. And I was from that point avidly hunting for that kind of literature. Um I now actually own a, a set of the Great Marvel series. I was given; they were given to me as a, a graduation gift some years ago, and uh, that was that was actually when I found out that there was actually a whole series of these, and it wasn't a standalone book. Now, I also, of course, found as an adult that they're um, not nearly as good as as they seem to me as a kid. But uh, nonetheless, those were those were both what I could what I could call a life changing book. Great Marvel Volume Seven. So.
0: I'm not going to lie, that interests me even now. Now, the, the execution's another story, but.
1: Well, uh, I, I will say, if you want to read great Marvel, the greatest one in the series, I think, is um, the one that comes right before that one. It's called On a Torn Away World, which is also its closest to having any real science in it. It's uh, about a super volcano that blasts uh, a giant piece of Alaska into space, and they're trying to survive on this um, chunk of land that's been uh, knocked into orbit. So, I, I say it comes closest to having any real science in it. Not that it's it's actually very realistic at all, but <laughs> it is, it so is you're saying it's not
0: NASA approved, huh?
1: <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that that uh, they all would have probably just died from from being blasted off into orbit by the the super volcano. But the attempt to describe how um, uh, temperature changes and sunrise and sunset and kind of the wildly. Uh, differences in gravity and things like that we're we're at least making uh, a pretty good attempt for what is otherwise um, a series that's that's kind of worshipful of science but doesn't actually know any (laughs) okay
0: so what is it speaking of speculative fiction and worshiping it what is it about the genre that you love so much
1: you know, as, as a kid, I certainly couldn't have defined it, and I'm not even sure I can define it now. Um, and, and of course, I, I no longer have that detestation for more ordinary stories. My, my reading is uh, certainly more eclectic now than it was when I was a child, but I think um, it really takes you out of yourself. It takes you out of your surroundings, your settings, shows you possibilities Activates your imagination in perhaps a way that uh, that stories of more normal circumstances don't, and and I think you know you've even seen a lot of so-called literary works will often incorporate fantasy elements just because um, you, you know they need that to make a certain plot work or or convey a certain kind of theme, um, or, or we could look at folklore or epic poetry or or all the different types of, of literature where the the fantastic seems to be a necessary part. Uh, of our storytelling. Uh, There's, there's something in us that demands that. And and I don't really know if I could define it or explain it, or if anybody really can, but there does seem to be something in us that, um, that yearns for it. And whether that's, uh, that's just a religious impulse or because we have really uh, active imaginations, I don't, I don't think I'm equipped to say, but Uh, I think it is a fundamental need and maybe just in some of us, we pursue it more relentlessly or in different ways from others. Um, Again, it was it was something I loved and wanted as a child. And that, you know, in a sense, has never left me.
0: Okay, so how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you going, man, I really like reading these stories to, hey, why don't I try telling some of my own?
1: I think again, Ray Bradbury was a big influence on that, and a lot of that simply had to do with uh, his style of prose. I mean, up to that point, when I discovered him, and when I discovered him, it was probably somewhere between fifth and seventh grade. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly when I found Ray Bradbury, but um, it was, it was really the way he wrote and the way he could evoke an image with his words and give you this, uh, this, this real picture of what he's describing he's even got some stories that are almost nothing except a, a description of a scene some of the, some of his stories are quite simple plot wise uh, i think it was it was really an attempt to copy his style that that got me writing in the first place and, and of course what that produced in like 7th grade was some some very overwrought almost unreadable descriptions you know seven pages writing about a sunset or something um, but what I think that did help me with, even though, of course, those, those early attempts were, were quite poor, is it eventually led me into a style of my own that is still, uh, I think, a fairly descriptive, say, compared to your uh, typical novel style today, um, still, a, still a fairly descriptive style, but also my own style and no longer attempt to imitate somebody else. I think I learned that from him, though there were a lot of other things I had to I began learning from other places, like you know, plot structure and characterizations, things that, that Bradbury was never really heavily focused on, since you know theme and style were kind of his, his strongest points.
0: Okay. So are any of those early works available for, for readers to track down if they were so, <laughs> so inclined?
1: No, no, I don't think I would I don't think I would show anybody something I wrote in middle school unless uh, I, I attempted unless I completely rewrote it. I had um one <laughs> I had one novel I was attempting to write in middle school that um I have sometimes crossed my mind that the the premise might be interesting enough to do something with. I was I was actually shocked when the movie Avatar came out because it was almost my novel exactly that I was writing in middle school. Um with with a few a few differences, even the even the whole action sequence with the floating rocks that didn't really make any sense. Uh, <laughs> I looked at that and said, ha, either either he was reading my mind or I was just writing something really cliched. And so someone was going to eventually do it anyway. I don't (laughs) know. you can take that, take that how you how you want to see it, I guess.
0: Okay. So many real life uh, – many <laughs> many authors will let their real life stories influence – or their real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any formidable moments that you think shaped you as a creative?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I do let all kinds of things from my experience um, into my books – Uh, whether it's something I just happened to have read somewhere and said, oh, that's really interesting. I want to use that or or something I've personally experienced or people I know and kind of their their personality quirks for this particular novel. um, I do very heavily on uh, uh, culture and, uh, and religion and mythology from India. Um, I spent a couple of months there and uh, my personal experience just out on the street and trying to absorb, scenes and seeing the colors, the clothing, the smells, uh, the vehicles rushing past. Uh, some of those uh, direct experience went uh, went straight into the book with some of the street scenes that, that appear in this. And I think really, if I hadn't gone there, I think the, the book probably would not have uh, quite as much color, or quite as much vividness as it probably uh, would have otherwise. Certainly, so I think you- it's possible to write without very much personal experience. You know, Jules Verne, wrote great adventure stories without ever leaving France. Um, but there's definitely something to be said from personal experience as well. Uh, I, speaking of like adventure fiction set in India, another good example of that is um, uh, Talbot Mundi's uh, King of the Khyber Rifles. There's a scene uh, early in that book in which he's in a, a train station. And, and I think you can just tell this is, this is Mundi describing his own experience of, of being in a Delhi train station. And uh, as the movie moves to, or not movie, as the book moves to more fantastical scenes, I think some of that vividness uh, kind of naturally gets lost. And, and I think it's, it's that personal experience that really goes in there. I kind of thought the same thing some years back. There was a novel by uh, that was co-written by Buzz Aldrin, and now I cannot remember the other author's name, Barnes, and I cannot think of his first name now. Some of the scenes of going into space and the way he describes that, um, I think, are very different from probably what most of us who've never been to space uh, would typically say. He actually describes it as, I didn't think to, to be all wondrous about the fact that I'm leaving the Earth or all that because I'm too busy you know, managing the controls and getting messages back and forth from ground control. And I thought It sounded actually very mundane, but it, but in such a way that probably only somebody who's actually done it could have come up with that was kind of the impression that it had given me at the time. I, I, I seem to think at least that I see that sometimes in books I read, you can see these little hallmarks of personal experience. Uh, same thing with um, Moby Dick. Some of the those incredibly vivid scenes in there probably would not uh, be there if the author did not did not have some of the personal experiences that he had so um and and i try to let that uh, go into my own work as well since i've I've seen how that benefits others i do i do try to draw from personal experience i am very grateful i got to to spend some time in india in in the case of writing this particular one because i think it really did improve it
0: so did you go to india just for this book or just happen to be happenstance
1: i i definitely uh, it was it was this book that um, motivated the trip. I was there on kind of a um, uh, what do they call it? A, a kind of a volunteerism trip. I was um, I was uh, you know volunteered teaching uh, English in a, an elementary school there, and also uh, visiting some of the um, some of the surrounding uh, areas of, of where I was. So uh, I do kind of wish I had been able to take perhaps a more extensive trip and and see more of the country. But I think even with with what I did get to see and what I did get to visit, it uh, uh, played a major role in the the final version of this novel. Okay. So transitioning away from the
0: writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. Okay. Have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters?
1: I am afraid not. Though if somebody did, they could uh, send it to me over at my blog or uh, or through my newsletter link. So. <laughs> Okay, uh, we will I link back in the show notes um, for for this per, for this particular book. If you want to dress like my my main character, just uh, putting on a uh, maybe a really frilly ball gown with a, a bell shaped skirt and carrying a couple of handguns in your hands would almost be enough to dress up as this main character. Uh, my my previous novel, uh, Jake and the Dynamo. If I saw somebody trying to cosplay as Pretty Dynamo, I think that would be impressive, but. Um, Probably as long as long as you can do the uh, the fancy uh, what do they call that like uh, I think goth lolita is what it's sometimes called uh, that style would would probably be almost sufficient to uh, cosplay my protagonist from this one.
0: I'm just not sure I got the legs to pull off that kind of dress. Sorry.
1: <laughs> well, I don't either, so it's all right. I don't have the waistline well, to pull it off. I know that much. Yeah, me either but I'll get there someday.
0: Still not pulling it off, but maybe. (laughs) All right. So uh, since you started writing, I know you're relatively new at the writing side of things, but has anybody asked for your autograph yet since you started writing?
1: I have. uh, uh, Mostly local people in my area, but I I have given a few autographs. So
0: do you remember the first time somebody asked you what that what that experience was like?
1: Well, you know, it, it's uh, if I really if I really go back to the first first autograph I gave, it would probably be my mom or somebody. But um, the first time it was somebody I like I didn't know. We uh, I was recently at a little um, fair or festival and uh, in Oklahoma where I had a booth, and I did have uh, people there asking for for autographs along with the books they picked up, and I thought that was. That was pretty exciting. Um, in part, it was exciting just because of how many people came and were, showed interest. You know, it's always been kind of my understanding that, you know, unless you're number one New York Times bestseller, authors, booths are, are generally desolate places. Uh, but I actually got quite a lot of traffic and intend and, and to go back there next year. And I'm definitely gonna have to bring more stock as well. I, I ran out of books pretty quickly when I was there. So,
0: you are already doing better, apparently, according to the recent reports than most trad pubs. The recent report with the Random House Law, so it was like, I think the average book sells 12 copies.
1: I, I think I did see that, but what, I'm not sure I quite understood what the number was. Was that actually trad pub, or was that like as a whole?
0: That was the specifically traditionally published books, and what okay. it is is most of the uh, people never find out about those books because they push so heavily on the, the big names yeah. that if you're not a big name, you know, people have to accidentally stumble into a corner and find your book laying there before they know it exists, kind of thing.
1: I, I don't actually know my exact numbers, but I'm confident I've sold more than twelve. So I guess yeah, I I, guess I'm pretty I'm sure I beat 12 I'm, I'm above average. I can at least put that. I'll put that. I'll put that up on uh, a header somewhere. Above, average yeah.
0: <laughs> confidently <laughs> above average. <laughs>
1: there you go, confidently above average author DGD Davidson.
0: Yeah, that's that's recruiting poster material right there. So finally, <laughs> what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan? Obviously, keeping it family friendly since you started writing.
1: Yeah, well, the um, the the weirdest and again, I, I have not had a, a uh, probably enough to give you a really eccentric story. But um, the speaking of family friendly, the. Um, one that kind of made me nervous where I just had a, a a woman come up to me and tell me that her her young daughter, her 11-year-old daughter, was uh, really enjoying my books. That made me uh, a little bit nervous just because so far, uh, the work that I've written, I, I don't really consider as being aimed specifically at kids, even though I, I tend to write child protagonists. The books themselves are actually uh, written uh, geared for a more adult audience. Although that, uh, that interaction did get me to thinking, and, and also my experience, too, at this little uh, festival that I was at, where most of the people who were coming to my booth and showing interest were, in fact, kids, uh, that I, I really would like to produce something that's um, more family-friendly, more uh, child-oriented. So I am actually working on a, a sword and sorcery a novel at present that's um, more geared toward the younger reader. I have a few picture book book ideas also um, uh, jostling around in my head, though I haven't entirely decided what to do with them as yet. But uh, at the moment, in, in addition to a sequel of one of my, my other existing books, I am working on something that's more for the kiddos, um, partly because of interaction with parents and, and also just because of the number of children who have shown interest in my work. So so you'll
0: have to definitely come back when when you get those out because that would be, be an interesting conversation. <laughs> All right. Um, So speaking of your other works, can you give us the Reader's
1: Digest version of your body of work? What are what all have you written? Well, as I mentioned, I have I have three books uh, currently published. My uh, first two are two books in the series called Jake and the Dynamo. They're a post-apocalyptic magical girl comedy series, uh, action comedy about a hapless young man who finds himself in the company of a girl with superpowers who's the only one who can keep him alive while the monsters who are trying to decimate humanity are targeting him specifically. Um, lots of slapstick humor. It's, it's largely a kitchen sink fantasy humor book. Basically anything I think is funny goes in there and becomes a joke. Um, almost anything in terms of uh, fantastical elements can kind of fit into its world. It's a world where space aliens, and uh, gods and ghosts can all kind of um, butt heads with each other, and so they end up fighting or dealing with most everything, ancient conspiracies and attacks by alien robot dinosaurs, and, uh, and most everything else. It's, it's been really a fun series, and it's, it's gotten some positive responses. Uh, my most recent novel, uh, the one I'm personally most excited about and which also definitely required the most uh, legwork in order to produce uh, is this one, Rags and Muffin, that you um, have on the video feed shown shown up there. This takes place in a world that's built around uh, Indian culture and mythology. It's almost a kind of uh, condensed pseudo-India in a single city, but uh, the central premise is that humans share the earth alongside another race called the Marjara, who are sort of a cat-like species, but they're able to interbreed, and their offspring are uh, young girls, if they interbreed, are girls who are able to produce uh, religious mystical experiences on demand, which uh, leads to them being worshipped as living goddesses, but at the same time, they have a gland in the back of their heads that produces a hallucinogenic drug that's valuable on the black market. So they're both worshipped and also exploited. And the main character is one of these girls who for rather complicated and esoteric reasons has gained great strength and fighting ability and uh, has gathered together a team and works to rescue other girls who are being sold on the black market. Um, the story, the central story is a rescue operation that goes horribly wrong. And uh, the main characters uh, adventure trying to get in and out with someone they're attempting to rescue. There's enormous amounts of fighting. I'd say about probably about two thirds of the book is action. Um, and much of the rest uh, is, is world building and giving you a tour of this, um, this, uh, this universe and building the book. And it's also is set up for a sequel as well. So I'm, I am I uh, am working on turning it into a series. Okay, that sounds definitely interesting, and
0: uh, we'll we'll uh, space these out because obviously we don't want to do all back to back. But I'd, okay. I'd be interested okay. to talk about that one too. I know humor is difficult to write, uh, especially when you have to consider everything needs double, sometimes triple meanings. <laughs> uh, It can be a lot of work, especially when you're someone whose humor is never left twelfth grade or the barracks or Mm -hmm. however you want to describe infantry humor. But I, uh, I submitted a story once to a humor anthology, and they're like, "Yeah, this is too vulgar for us." (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, "Oh, okay." So I published it myself, but I would, I was like, "I'm never doing this again." Obviously, that all sounds fascinating, but if you uh, look by the uh, low connectivity, so there's no image on the screen today, you've been looking at his book cover the whole time, so we're here to talk about Rags and Muffin. Uh, so what's the origin story for this novel? Like, how
1: did you come up with the premise for it? It's kind of, uh, man, it seems like I've been uh, working on this so intently. I've, I've kind of forgotten what, what some of the sources of, of many of these things were. I think there are probably... Uh, Six things that inspired the concepts, the plot, and, and all the, the different things that are in it. Um, an interest, fascination with, uh, with Indian culture, uh, a love for adventure novels, and probably uh, Talbot Mundi and Rudyard Kipling are probably the uh, biggest inspirations in this case. I also discovered uh, through my work as I began researching for this, uh, the existence of an actual practice of, uh, of worshiping uh, young girls as living goddesses, it's especially in uh, the uh, Buddhism of Nepal, although there's also uh, a Hindu practice uh, uh, somewhat similar. Uh, I inc- ended up incorporating a lot of that into my depiction of these, these girls in this book. Uh, a lot of anime and kung fu movies, I won't deny I actually went into um, many of the ideas in here. There's Uh, A lot of uh, martial arts fighting, there's some giant robots around as well, Uh, but also uh, probably one of the most influential things, albeit indirectly, is probably the philosophy of Timothy Leary and his idea of taking psychedelic drugs as kind of a shortcut to uh, mystical religious experience. Um, I don't believe I've ever actually read anything by Leary, but I know as an undergraduate, I kind of absorbed some of his ideas through some uh, some writers such as John Hick and Houston Smith. Um, and, you know, never terribly had much interest in that direction, but that kind of came back to me as I was working on this particular book. And I think that that kind of informs that you have, on the one hand these these girls that can offer these experiences, but that means, in a sense, putting yourself in their power, or then there's people who are actually exploiting them for drugs, kind of getting the shortcut. And I think that maybe, in a sense, somewhat analogous to um, to real life, where uh, you know people who have um, you know uh, intense mystical experiences usually achieve them through a, you know very lengthy uh, process of self discipline and self denial. And I think one of the reasons that Timothy Leary's ideas probably appealed to a lot of people is because he was suggesting you can have this through self-indulgence instead, that um, here's an easy path, just drop LSD and you can see God essentially is, is what he was uh, promising people. Um, and again, I, I don't think I had any a great uh, longstanding interest in, in him or his ideas, but I found that that became part of the stew that I uh, ended up going into the book and so is kind of lurking in there as, as one of its major themes.
0: Okay, and uh, before we get too deeply into this novel, we're at that point of the uh, episode, dear listeners, where we pause for a moment and we are going to shamelessly shill for the man. So uh, thank you, Jonathan Yanez, and uh, we appreciate your sponsorship. If this thing will play for us, and go! Grab your swords and get ready to level up. When gaming journalist Ray experiences a tragic accident with the next generation of gaming consoles... He finds himself stuck in the mystical land of Valka. Trapped in a world filled with magic beasts, warring factions, filthy bandits, and a level system that's out of this world. The only problem is, his only way out may be through. Ray must fight like his life depends on it, because it just may. Survival means victory, and defeat could mean the end. Forever. Legends Online Genesis. Releases on Audible January 7th. Digital and hard copies now available on Amazon. All right. Thank you for sticking with us. And I just realized we got to get them to update that commercial because it's already out now. All right. But uh, we appreciate that sponsorship, uh, Jonathan. Uh, but before we dig into the novel any deeper, we're going to take a moment to, to talk about that image on the screen. So what is the story for this uh this glorious image. Normally, we call it sexy book covers, but she looks a little young for that word, so we're just going to call it
1: glorious. Glorious book covers. Yes. Well, uh, that is a picture of um, of Rags and Muffin. That's uh, Rags in the front, and Muffin is the creature with her there. Uh, Rags is the protagonist of this book. She is a twelve year old girl, though her um, her pediatrician is filling her with a stew of drugs that uh, is actually left her. Uh, somewhat younger looking. Her her creature with her there is called a dragon dog, and his name is Muffin because she got to name him. But he is a, a fallen demigod who is being punished by being made a companion for young children. He is currently bonded with young rags, And one of the requirements of his exile is that he has to play whatever game she wants to play. And the game that she wants to play is fighting bad guys in real life. And so he is her constant companion. He's also the driver in the story. He likes to steal cars and is able to operate them and is also an alcoholic. So so she has an alcoholic carjacking dog that accompanies her on her uh, various misadventures. just what every parent
0: wants in a babysitter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think you might not want uh, muffin looking after your kids. Um, He can talk, but only children can hear him. So the the adults are none the wiser about their conversations.
0: Maybe that's for the best. (laughs) It might be. (laughs) So let's move on to the book itself. What would your 32nd elevator pitch for this novel be?
1: Oh, gosh, I think I've given it already. But this is um, this is what would happen if Talbot Mundi drank a whole lot of whiskey while watching anime and then uh, pounded out a novel afterwards. This is uh, action, adventure, um, lots of, um, well, we'll call it kung fu, basically. I use a different word in the book, but um, lots of uh, lots of kung fu fighting lots of uh, Magitech technology. There's lots of uh, demon-possessed robots that drag people off to hell. There's lots of very vicious villains, child heroes fighting them. I view this in a way as I I hate to use the word deconstruction because I'm not very fond of of the concept, although it it always seems to be what I end up doing when I write. Um, I might call this a deconstruction of uh, Saturday morning cartoons where uh, kids uh, get up and go to school and then turn around and fight villains and save the world. It's similar to that, but one thing that's, that kind of dissatisfied me, at least as an adult, when I see those kinds of shows or, or read those kinds of comics, is that uh, the villains are usually pushovers. They're They're kind of nice villains, the kind of villains you don't mind hanging around your kids too much. And uh, Rags and Muffin is uh, based around more the idea of uh, kids going up against villains who are actually really nasty, really tough people. And uh, the kids, because of the, the particular powers that they have been endowed with and the equipment that they have access to, are physically prepared uh, to take on these villains, but they're not really uh, psychologically and mentally prepared. And so, um, uh, many of Rags's companions come out of these encounters, um, quite battered both, uh, both physically and, and, uh, psychologically as a result.
0: I would but, be worried if they didn't come out battered psychologically <laughs> after well, that.
1: But, well, yes, but it's, uh, again, it's, it's kind of a take on those types of stories. I, I'm, I'm probably thinking mostly of Kim Possible when I, um, Think of this. I don't really think that was one of my direct inspirations, but I did. I did watch it at one point and at least noted some similarities. Um, you know, her villains are kind of kind of silly, kind of not too, um, uh, you know, G-rated kind of villains. And and this is very different from that. These are these are uh, pretty bad people that they're actually going up with. And and um, Rags herself seems to be almost. Uh, invulnerable to anything that comes her way, but she drags a lot of other kids along with her, uh, who have a very tough time coping with it. Okay. So what do you think makes this series special? Well, I think that's an unusual take on the idea of the child hero. And I, I got an, um, an early review from, uh, from Reedsy that, that made kind of the same point that uh, noted that this is, uh, Maybe even kind of a risky endeavor. That it's uh, it's a book with children for the main characters, but is very clearly aimed uh, at an adult readership. Um, obviously, that's not unheard of. But I think I think when it's done, it's probably more often done in kind of artsy novels where you have these um, these very quiet children who are wise beyond their years or something to that effect. Uh, this is a book where the kids are not wise beyond their years. They are. Uh, physically powerful beyond their years or, in, or indeed beyond normal ability. But um, in terms of their minds, in terms of their ability to strategize all of that are, are still very much children and behave like children. And um, that also gives me an opportunity for some, some more cutesy scenes and some, some humor in addition to the, uh, the violent action that, that characterizes probably the bulk of the novel. Um, so I think it is um, I think it's unusual also in that way. also uh, also the setting. there's uh, a, a very I don't know if I'm allowed to call my own book rich, maybe that's going too far, but a, a setting that I think anyway is is quite rich in uh, the development of its its lore, its background. you'll see a lot of uh, very, very colorful street scenes, and, and I'm really trying to evoke all the, the smells and the bustle and, and everything that is going on. Again, again, drawing in, uh, to some extent, to my own uh, visit to, uh, to India. So I think in terms of setting, uh, in terms of the uh, arguably somewhat risky concept, I think it's, I'm, I'm not aware of anything precisely like it.
0: Okay. All right. So, which tropes do you feel like "Rags and Muffin" hits the best?
1: Yeah. See, I again, I'm I'm not sure I'm really good at thinking in terms of of tropes. I've <laughs> I've spent some times on the TV tropes website, as probably just about everybody has, uh, but <laughs> it's it's a little hard to know how to to pick that out of your book. Well, something that I've I've kind of been interested in for a while is kind of these. Um, um, I tend to watch a lot of. There's something I could probably geek out a little different from the questions you asked you at the beginning of the podcast. I'm I'm uh, kind of interested in uh, magical girl anime. Again, my my other series, uh, Jake and the Dynamo, is uh, basically a magical girl series. Rags and Muffin, I, I say, is somewhat similar, except kind of those. Real obvious, like anime-inspired tropes, are more backgrounded. There are some giant robots in them, but there's there's a good chance you won't think of anime if, as you're uh, uh, reading this particular book. And so the central idea of of a young girl who's who's very powerful and carries weapons and and so forth is um, to some degree drawn from that. I also think I've I've put on a different spin on it from what's seen usually, especially incorporating. Um those ideas of uh, of the Nepalese, uh, you know kumari uh, worshiping um, aspect of their religion. i'm I'm not quite sure what noun to finish that sentence off with, but um, incorporating those religious ideas and uh, and blending them with this type of character, um I think makes that uh, an unusual take on that kind of uh, that idea. Um, I think uh, I think maybe at the time I first started this because admittedly this was, this is, in a sense, my first novel, even though I have other novels published. This was something I was I was working on before, so it it became something that I was working on for an unreasonably long amount of time. But I feel like when I started this, um, you know, Action Girls were probably perhaps not as common as they are now. So it's perhaps a little difficult now to say that I've got a strong female character and that's what makes it unique um the the age of the character the incorporated themes the uh, the incorporated uh, cultural motifs i think do make it uh, do make this an unusual character and uh, an unusual setting that she's in
0: okay so what about genres or subgenres obviously this sounds like fantasy i would say you've already said it's action adventure are there any other genres or subgenres that this fits into
1: I like to call it dungeon punk, but I'm not sure that word ever really took off. I think magic (laughs) tech became the more popular way to describe what I've got in here. This um, uh, analogous to steampunk, but it's, uh, you know, technology powered by magic rather than powered by steam, which is treated as magic, which is uh, what steampunk typically is. Um, One of the the characteristics of this is there's a... um, a technology in here that's basically machines that are po- that are possessed by uh, demons that that operate the machines essentially, and if the machines break, uh, the demons before flying back to hell will try to grab anyone they can and and drag them down with them, and that that becomes um, a recurring uh, danger hazard during uh, during some of the action scenes of these machines being uh, destroyed, and uh, and attempting to drag people to hell um it seems almost like the technology wouldn't be worth the risk but in any case there are apparently people in this world who think it is so um it has that again i like to call it dungeon punk it has that dungeon punk or magitech aspect as a major part of the world
0: okay so let's talk about the story itself other than what you've already told us about rags and, and muffin what would you say makes the main character unique
1: I like to describe her as Fancy Nancy with guns and Kung Fu, but I'm not sure if most people know who that character is. Um, it's, it's actually a series of uh, picture books I've been reading to my little daughter, who's uh, who's a toddler. But uh, and, and honestly, again, that was something that didn't directly inspire uh, this novel, something I discovered afterwards. My wife pointed out to me, you know, your character is a lot like Fancy Nancy. And I thought, you know, she is. She's she likes her pretty dresses, she likes her tea parties, she loves her dogs. She also uh, really, really likes to hurt bad people and happens to have the power to do so. Uh, I think that combination of her um, kind of kind of a, a sweet innocent aspect, and at the same time she's she's very angry at injustice, but has a, a child's idea of what justice should look like, which consists of little more than, you know, seriously injuring people she considers to be in the wrong. Um, she's not wrong, they are in the wrong. I mean, she, the, the people she's going after are, are in fact very bad people. But, um, and that was, that was difficult, I think at first, and, and finally figuring out how to structure her character in a way where uh, these two aspects of her made sense. Um, took a lot of work. And, and some early versions, early drafts of the book, it, it was almost like she'd, I'd hit an action scene and she'd like turned to wood. It's like I couldn't make her move. Um, like I was trying to force her around the page. And I had to go back and think about her character and, and think about, you know, why does she behave this way? And why does it, how does it make sense in the way that she's not just schizophrenic, like she's a sweet girl on the one hand and a rage goblin on the other? And I, I think what I finally came up with that, that actually made it work um, was was actually giving her a no-kill rule. I used to hate no-kill rules for superheroes. I thought they were artificial, but I, I reached a point where I realized Rags needed one. Um, and suddenly her her character made sense to me. And those two aspects of her personality suddenly gelled together uh, when I realized that she's she's not a little murderous. Um She's uh, very violent. She's a young um, assault and battery committer, but but not a murderess. <clears throat> Sounds like she needs some time out in and a nap. She might. <laughs> Probably the people she's after need a time out more than she does, but um, <laughs> but that that is a, a part of her. She's she is very angry as as well as a sweet little girl. I think in a way. Um, Kids are capable of that, especially, I mean, she's, she's not a toddler anymore, but uh, little toddlers can go in fat, back and forth between really happy and sweet to just just really upset because they've got those emotions they haven't learned how to control yet. Um, I, I think in a way, Rags is similar to that. She can go back and forth uh, very naturally from very happy to, to very angry and lashing out because in, in a way, she, she does not have uh, an adult self-control. Do we ever
0: discover how old she is exactly?
1: She is exactly 12, although, again, her um, her, her doctor's been uh, manipulating her with with various chemicals and such that have uh, essentially stopped her aging process. Uh, again, that's that kind of ties into uh, some, some other uh, plot elements in the book uh, of exactly why he's doing that. Um, and, and actually, well, I might as well tell you, the, the reason he's doing that is because um, these these hybrids, these girls who are half human and half Merjara, uh, in addition to being living goddesses who can produce these uh, mystical experiences on demand, uh, also have very short lifespans. So their maximum age is 16, at, at which point they simply sicken and die. Um, and uh, this, this pediatrician of, of Rags's is, conducting essentially illegal experiments, trying to find ways to extend their lifespans. And uh, he's, he's basically turned her into a little uh, experimental subject. So, Okay.
0: So were there any secondary characters which were especially memorable to you?
1: I think uh, the character that uh, to me was um, probably the most let's say easiest to write is probably Rags uh, most immediate sidekick, Nikki. Nikki is a 14 year old boy and, and all these kids have medical problems by the way. Rags is uh, Rags of course has a limited lifespan thing. And then Nikki has a glycogen storage disease. Um, I actually knew what I wanted his symptoms to be. And I hunted and hunted until I found a disease that actually matched what I wanted. Um, he has, he has glycogen storage disease type zero specifically which uh, basically means his body does not store uh, energy properly and he's he's a very competent fighter he's almost as skilled as rags is in hand-to-hand combat but he uh, he has to eat almost constantly or he can't keep his energy up that also uh, plays an important part of the story where basically uh, nikki is going to pass out and these kids are and and if he passes out he can eventually go into a coma and die and while these kids are basically trapped and not able to get him any food and so forth, um, is that that forms part of the, the tension of the book, the, the time limit surrounding uh, Nikki's particular condition. Um, Nikki's himself a very angry character, though a different way from Rags. He's, he's quite sullen. Um, that made him both kind of challenging to write, but I felt also in a way kind of very natural. And he's kind of the first character you meet that kind of shows what a toll following rags actually has on these kids. Another one who to me was probably the most interesting to write uh, was the the Lady Jean, who is um, uh, actually a 10 year old girl who has uh, a fairly severe case of central precocious puberty. She actually looks considerably older than she actually is because of of early maturation. Uh, Again, all of them have, have different medical issues. But she's actually the double agent on the team. She's secretly working with a terrorist organization that is trying to get information about Rags. I say secret, but that's it's revealed fairly early on, so that's not giving away too much. But um, her background of how this organization basically uh, broke her mentally um, was, uh, I think, very intense to write. Uh, required some some research. I was. Actually, uh, buying books on on child soldiers and kind of uh, uh, the real life uh, horror of of that to to get an impression of how to to construct her character. I also uh, ended up giving her, uh, based on um, uh, a real case I had read about of, of uh, a child experiencing trauma and attempting to cope with it. As she's she is developing, it's not quite full blown, but she's uh, yet because she's still young, but uh, developing a condition called. Oral sadism, essentially, where she uh, cuts herself and drinks her own blood to uh, t- to make her feel better whenever she's, uh, you know, uh, dealing with trauma that she she doesn't know how to handle otherwise. Um, uh, again, kind of an, an intense character to write. I thought, uh, to me personally, one of the most um, fascinating characters to explore in the book. Um, but again, like i like I said before, these, uh, these, these kids are all, you know, struggling to, to deal with these things that they're being exposed to, that they're really not ready for.
0: Okay. So obviously you've mentioned that there's a bad guy in this. So what can you tell us without giving us any spoilers about the bad guys?
1: Well, for this first volume, um, the bad guys are, or you might say relatively low level. There's, there's various bad guys who get encountered. Um, but the one who forms kind of uh, a centerpiece of this particular novel is uh, a man named uh, Velasquez who is running a uh, brothel and opium den and has recently acquired um one of these uh, girls off the black market for the in- intention of exploiting her for the for the drug that's in the back of her head so he and his henchmen are kind of the uh the primary villains in this book Though we're also in- encountering some other villains who will be uh, of more importance later who uh, who rags has some uh, encounters and battles with but uh, velasco himself and uh, and the guys surrounding him are uh, the main villains i tried to make him at least slightly sympathetic uh there's a point in there where he's he's got ends up with uh making some mistakes having various people after him another uh mafia basically is is after him as well as rags and uh uh, ends up uh, basically telling the uh, the prostitutes working for him that they're free to go and that he won't try to hunt them down for escaping from them or anything like that. I tried to give him that, that little bit of moment of of sympathy where he shows some, some concerns for others, even though his life is, is basically built around exploiting people. Um, some of his henchmen also, I tried to give some different interesting traits. There's one of them who's depicted as very... Kind of gentle and sympathetic toward toward this girl who's been kidnapped, and um, and is trying to treat her well. Or on the other hand, there's another guy who's who's a, uh, uh, a basically a uh, sadistic pedophile uh, who's not sympathetic at all. And Those two characters are, are kind of set in a sort of contrast with each other among the um, the, the henchmen of this main, main villain. So. And, and there are some others as well, some some heavies who have cool martial arts moves and so forth. So he's got a he's got a collection of those, and then also uh, a side villain is directly related to the main villain who builds uh, builds some of these demon possessed robots, which also um, uh, fit into the, uh, the the action sequences at one point as well. And yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> Okay, uh, so speaking of... lost my thread there somewhat, but... No, no, you, you did good. You did good.
0: So speaking of characters, uh, if yours met you in a dark alley and they knew who you were, you were the Mr. Davidson who made their life hell. How do you see that interaction playing out for you?
1: <laughs> you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, if it was... Um... Let's see if it was Nicky, I don't, I don't know if he'd uh, actually start beating me up or if he'd just cuss at and scream at me. Actually, the latter seems more in keeping with his personality. Um, Rags, oh um i'm i'm trying to think of what exactly her reaction would be well if she knew that i was the one who was making people's lives life hell since her philosophy is to beat up bad people who do bad is to beat up people who do bad things to others i think i would probably not fare very well if i had a direct encounter with her i I'd, I'd probably come out of it with some limbs broken um at the very least so I, I, I was uh, rags would probably not be the one I'd want to want to encounter. At first I was thinking, well, maybe meeting rags. Be, no, no. I think, I think she'd hurt me <laughs> since
0: we talked about characters. Do you have a favorite character archetype? Do you think in those terms when you write your novels?
1: I don't, I don't really think in terms of, of archetypes. I have been known sometimes to use the word motif, which I guess sometimes means more or the same thing without the psychological baggage. But um I, I don't really think in terms of that. I think I, I tend to think of my characters more in terms of uh, what's the personality here, what's the backstory, what are, what are their abilities, how would this character react to the situation? And so I do like to think of them more as individuals rather than representations of an archetype, though I think rags in a sense um to me, and I, I had an early test reader who said this as well. Said that she kind of saw Rags as like a force of nature, uh, almost more than a character, uh, which I think is fair. Kind of, kind of the way she is, almost an archetypal little girl. But then there's there's this um, uh, extreme violent aspect of her, um, and again, some of that I, I think is probably the, the influence of the anime. I like with with the uh, you know the, the very powerful. Um, girls are often common in that. So maybe you could call that an archetype of sorts, but uh, I think that word or that, that idea is, is not what's normally going through my mind as I'm, as I'm writing or as I'm um, creating my characters.
0: Okay. So can you give us a sneak peek behind the curtain? So when you were writing this, were there any cool scenes or ideas that got cut for the book that readers might find interesting?
1: yeah the uh, the stuff the stuff <laughs> the stuff that ended up getting cut is stuff that I'm going to keep in a dark dungeon where I'll never reveal it. And to be honest, our early versions of this story um, were I think ex- extremely lurid uh, to the point that they were very I mean this is this is about young girls being being kidnapped and exploited. I mean when you, when you come right down to it, that forms a major uh, part of the, the plot, a major part of the, the overarching concept here. Um, some of the early versions were, I thought, just, they were It's so taxing to write. They were um, hard to write. And then looking back over them, I found them disgusting and and not the kind of thing either I wanted to read or would want to try to make somebody else read. And for a while, that really, um, you know, had me kind of depressed about the book because I thought, you know, this just is not working. And, but I, I. Kind of believe in my main character. I believe in my cast of characters, but the the concept here is just not working out. And uh, it was actually at that point, uh, and this seems odd because it's it's very central to the book, but uh, it was actually at that point I, I came up with that idea of that gland that that produces a drug, and. Um, Immediately, I realized that's it. That's that's the key to this whole book. I've been trying to figure out how these different parts work together, and some stuff is just too disgusting. and uh, And then with that, I was able to um, to uh, not only tie the book together so that it makes sense, but also really take um, take it and, and tone it down in such a way that it's it's still bloody, it's still violent. There's still broken bones and whatnot but, um, where it's, it's really more of an action novel and not something like absolute body horror type of stuff that, that I just kind of did not want to inflict on the world. Um, uh, so yeah, there was, there was early stuff. I don't think it's very good. Um, in terms of scenes though, as in like large, maybe chunks of, of scenes that uh, might have been in the book and, and got cut. Um, I, I don't really think so. I think uh, the, the plot for this first novel, I kind of had all at once. And, and pretty much the whole thing, I, I think, went in there. I mean, this this initial story, I knew who I wanted her to rescue, who had her, and, and more or less the, the events that are going to happen there uh, right from the beginning. What I actually had to do was add more things on. Because my original version, I was basically throwing too many characters at the reader at once. Uh, I realized I needed to back off. I needed to start the story at an earlier point. It's like, how does Rags get this information? and Know where this girl is to go rescue her? I needed to to tell that, which also gave me space to uh, to introduce all these characters. Uh, originally, it was too much too much in medias res, I guess we could say, too much starting in the middle, and and actually needed some more backdrop first. So, um, really, it was it was more adding on uh, to the original more than taking away. And then and then really changing the tone um, were, were probably the biggest changes overall from from my earliest versions.
0: OK, that's that's a fair assessment. So what can you tell us about the larger universe? That, if, if there's any parts of it that we haven't already talked about, um, can you give us a hint of those? those I'm facets really
1: fascinated of- by the idea of the city with a capital C. Like the idea of a of a of a city to end all cities, or a city that contains all cities, or something to that effect. i I have something similar in um, in Jake and the Dynamo, where that that basically takes place in a city where you know you can practically go to a different part of the world just by you know taking a bus to the next neighborhood over. Um, this this one isn't quite like that, but it's it's kind of similar in that it's it's the archetypal city in its own sense. When I um when I started writing this, I already had ideas going to be in some kind of some kind of city environment, and my Earliest thinking was kind of almost like a vague Blade Runner type of setting. And then it kind of occurred to me, I thought, um, maybe maybe this is like a religious capital. And then I asked myself, uh, okay, of what religion? And I immediately said, all of them. It's the religious capital for every religion. And uh, I showed some, some early stuff to a few test readers. And somebody told me, I'm kind of getting out uh, like an India vibe out of this. And I thought, all right, I'm going to lean in that direction. I, I was unsure at first, how much did I want to completely make up? How much did I actually want to borrow from, you know, like real world culture? Um, by the time, uh, by the time it reached final stage, the, the Indian elements are, are unambiguous. And again, it's almost like the Indian subcontinent collect, collapsed into a Megalopolis. Um, And so that, that in a sense, is the world. It's, it's this... um. This this religious center that that draws very heavily from from different aspects of of Indian culture and Indian mythology. There's also um, again because I like adventure stories like set in the British Raj, so there's there's also kind of a stand-in for the British Empire here, although it's very different. It's this magitech empire with the demon-possessed technology that is uh, there in the city that has not completely taken it over. They basically own one end of the city. Um, are largely despised by by the people who don't like being invaded. And uh, and much of what's going on is surrounding this this central story of the rescue. There's also a larger conflict. There are uh, terrorist organizations and and military maneuvers and and, uh, all these various things going on in the city, some of which are are intersecting with the, uh, the adventures that our heroes are having.
0: So did you curse the story universe with the dreaded IPA? The the what? The dreaded IPA, oh, the, the India IPA. Yeah.
1: You, know, <laughs> you know I thought maybe about mentioning those like in a sequel, but um, nah. <laughs> if anybody drinks beer, they'll they'll drink better better beer than that. Um, partly I appreciate much.
0: you saying that.
1: I, I don't think I have to the IPA on it because I, I, don't, I don't know if this is quite true. There seems to be a lot of lore around alcoholic drinks. You dig a little deeper and find out that the story you've always heard isn't really true. So I don't know if this is accurate, but at least to, according to what I have read, the IPA was invented because they believed that that extra dose of hops that makes it taste like pine salt was um necessary to preserve the beer in the very hot environment of india um this story is uh, not a historical setting it's closer to contemporary although it it, electronic devices don't exist in this alternate world i kind of think of it as maybe like it's maybe the 1980s or at least that's kind of where i settled for any real world technology that that uh, might make its way into the book but um you know in addition to the magic technology but uh, so, since they, they wouldn't necessarily have this uh, myth about how beer preservation works and would have refrigerators, they probably wouldn't need to invent the IPA. Uh, yeah.
0: So yeah that, that maybe, the maybe, I haven't
1: really thought about it till now, but maybe IPAs do not exist in this alternate universe. That is entirely possible. I mean, that's uh, it's often that's, a very dark, grimy world that the story is set in, but you can, you can think of that as one, one bright spark of hope in the, myth, <laughs> the world of rags and muffin that there are no ipas
0: I, I i approve i approve all right so since you mentioned a sequel rags and muffin is clearly a part of a series it says so on amazon but there's currently only one book out there is only the one series. book out.
1: so so where do you see the series going next well i think there's going to be more and bigger adventures i uh, i do have an idea there's one uh there's um there's a uh Insane cannibal cyborg furry, who appears in this first novel, is going to have uh, a larger role in the second. Um, There's also going to be a mysterious cult that shows up, Some, uh, some new kids on the block, so to speak, who become rivals of a sort to rags, who are also of a mysterious nature. And, and some uh, some of the mysteries are kind of set up in this first book will uh, begin to get uh, a few of their answers. And also of course, the larger political conflict of which uh, to which rags in this first book is is tangentially related, and she will become more thoroughly enmeshed in later on. So that is that is all coming down the road. Okay.
0: So we know that every literary universe has their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and magic. So what sort of tech can we expect from these demon-inspired creations?
1: Well, they have uh, they have killer robots that are used often as, as grunts in fighting and which are very hard to put down. And if you do put them down, they can uh, drag you to hell with them, possibly. Um they also have uh, giant mechs that are operating a similar way although those actually have a, a human pilot inside as well as some airships they have side blasters that can scramble your brains um, so you want to stay out of the range of those but um there are two forms of magic in this this oh one one i would like to actually mention also there's there's an illegal form of bomb on the black market that's just actually a very simple a demon-possessed machine that's designed to blow up. So it's actually designed to drag people to hell when it explodes. Um, those are those are uh, considered a war crime. <clears throat> but um, uh, there's also uh, the additional form of magic. It's kind of the external magic, the things you can do with the world around you to manipulate it. But there's also the internal form, where through intense uh, self-control and self-denial, A person can and meditation, a person can potentially begin to gain um, uh, great powers and then can apply those to martial arts, basically bending physics, running up walls, punching through concrete, all that, all that good. uh, Again, I mentioned kung fu movies and inspiration here. So, all that, uh, all that good kung fu movie types of stuff becomes available to people. Ordinarily, that takes many, many years to develop, but because of some um, peculiar and unnatural. Uh, experiments conducted on rags she has an ability to to do that already as a, as a young child and even an ability to pass that ability on to others which is why she has this team of kids who have that have those same kinds of powers so that's that's kind of the internal form of magic in addition to the external and obviously that's in addition to the kung fu movies that's inspired somewhat by um you know the kind of powers that are developed by characters in like the uh, the mahabharata or the or the Ramayana who through their self-denial and meditations get basically gained superpowers. Um, so, so both of those are in there as, as kind of separate magic systems.
0: So of all the tech that you invented or magic for this universe, is there anything you'd want for daily use?
1: Uh, I think the demon possessed machines would definitely be something to stay away from. I would, I, I invented them as, as kind of making how can I, how can I make this as terrible as possible? I can, Oh yeah. They're going to just drag people to hell. And, um, it's, I, I, I absolutely do not think the risk would be worth those things. I would not want such a machine anywhere near me (laughs) for, for any reason. So uh, those, I would definitely not like to see in the real world. Um, the, uh, the alternative of being able to, uh, being able to jump over buildings or punch through a rock wall could uh, potentially be a very handy ability although it's, it's also easy to imagine how people could uh, misuse it so I wouldn't I wouldn't mind having a power like that for myself I'll admit I'm, I'm not all sure right. if a, I'm not sure if it would be a good thing for it to be commonplace I think it, it might lead to a lot of mischief and it certainly does in the world of the novel so
0: all right. Uh, normally we would ask you how you would use and abuse that, but it sounds like you already uh, alluded to that. So um, you mentioned that the the world has some fantastical creatures in it. So when you go about creating them, um, specifically, uh, Muffin seems like you know sort of a fantastical creature, if you would. So when you go about creating these creatures, how do you how do you do it? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Do you create it out of whole cloth? Do you let biology sort of influence it?
1: That's that's tough, because I, Muffin seemed to come to my mind spontaneously, to be honest. Um, it was almost like as soon as I thought of the title, there was this, uh, it's, it's like the title and the rags and Muffin, like the characters in the title kind of came to be uh, together. Um, the, the, the world ended up getting uh, built around them, but uh, they at least in some form were there from the beginning, and actually, I don't think I don't think Muffin I've modified very much since he first came to my mind. I think, to be honest, for his appearance, uh, probably that um, uh, that uh, anime film Spirited Away, the uh, the dragon in that movie is probably what I was mostly thinking of when I thought of of what he looks like, uh, though obviously smaller. Um, but in terms of his ability, his habit of stealing cars, his constantly having a whiskey flask in his in his claws, and his uh, his kind of gruff manner of speaking, I think all of that was was pretty much right there and, and almost spontaneous. Uh, the Marjara, the alternate uh, species from the the human that uh, that, that humans can interbreed with, um, I think they were almost also for this book uh, largely spontaneous i first thought of okay they're gonna be some kind of anthropomorphic cat uh, what i ended up doing was was building their appearance and their their fur colors around uh, actually the the caste system as i started in incorporating more uh you know real world uh, indian elements into the story um like i kind of um uh I built built their appearances around that kind of the variations from one of them to the next uh is is kind of built around that on <laughs> Dependent on what their cast is, um, so so for this book, it seemed like those things kind of just came to me. When it when it came to uh, to Jake and the Dynamo, which has has a lot more crazy fantastical creatures in it, uh, a lot of it is just absolutely pulling from from anything I can get my hands on because that's that's uh, again a kitchen sink story. So it it incorporates all kinds of borrowed elements. Uh, there's lots of talking animals in that that are usually built around some kind of uh, oh. pun. Like there's a, a magical nun who has a church mouse for her magical companion. And then the main character has electrical powers. So she has a lightning bug, um, things like that. So uh, in that case, it was it was oftentimes just simply be, uh, based around, uh, around the humor. Um, for Rags and Muffin, I think um, there's not that many different types of fantastical creatures. Uh, And part of the reason for that is I wanted to make the villains, again, with that focus on really kind of really mean villains kids aren't ready for. They're also somewhat more real world villains, Uh, although there is there's a cannibal cyborg guy in there. But, uh, you know, the main villain is uh, a pimp and drug pusher and uh, possibly the the kind of person you might you might very well meet in, in real life. Um, and I want i want a lot of the, the villains in this particular book to be that way. They're really bad people, but they're like bad real people, you know, by and large.
0: <clears throat> okay, that was a thorough answer. I will take it. So um, obviously this interview is winding down. But before we let you go, was there anything about Rags and Muffin that we didn't
1: ask that you want to tell us? Wow, I feel like we've... Um, I possibly have said too much, but um, one thing I would I would just really say is that um, I I think this uh, attempts to combine kind of two different types of storytelling. On the one hand, it is uh, definitely a I hope I'm pronouncing the word right a, a milieu story, something that's kind of introducing you to a world, letting you explore. On the other hand, it's really an action story. Uh, there's a lot of fighting in the latter half, um, action scenes that I I definitely Sweat it over to make them as exciting as possible. So I think it's, uh, it's definitely a, uh, a fast paced, lots of, lots of action book, but I hope it also brings you a world you can really feel like you visited, that you can really feel like you explored for a little while within the pages there.
0: Okay, that was very thorough. And this is the part of the interview, and dear listener, While I remind you that uh, the writing, reading is a, uh, a two-way street. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. It would be greatly appreciated and helps keep the, uh, the writers able to keep writing more of those content you absolutely love. Before we let you go, DG, um, can you tell the listeners how they can find you?
1: Yes, you can find me especially on my blog. It is deusxmagicalgirl.com. You can also find me on Twitter at at DGD Davidson. I also occasionally appear on Facebook, I think under more or less the same name. And uh, those are the places where I am most active, uh, probably the blog especially. Uh, is is the best place to find me as, as oftentimes my content on other platforms is simply uh, mirroring what i post there.
0: Okay and as usual, dear listeners will be in the show notes. You can find us on twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show again sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. you can email us at blasters and podcast at gmail.com again blasters and blaze podcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, where all the shenanigans happen, over at facebook.com backslash groups, backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups, backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash Blasters, Tack and Tack Blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash Blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr. Handley. Uh, be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will not let my co-host Doc Seska or Nick Garber drink any disgusting IPA. I'm firmly convinced that only, uh, weird hipsters drink it. It's not a real beer. It tastes disgusting. Don't do it. It's right up there with pineapple on pizza on the level of criminality and, uh, clearly shows a level of psychosis. I, I've said it. You know my email. You know, Bring it. Uh, and uh, on that happy note, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and, Jay, uh, and Doc Seska, I am Jarr Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.